0: How many of you have heard of Asaph? Not 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 a real well-known name in the in the Bible. He's credited with writing this psalm. He was one of King David's uh, three chief musicians, or what we might today call worship leaders. Right? So in, in Nehemiah twelve forty six it says, long ago in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And so this is, this is who Asaph was. Uh, this is an interesting Psalm to me. At the end, we see Asaph crying out to God in praise. And this is what he says in verse 25, whom have I in heaven, but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My heart or my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's a pretty crazy statement to make. Uh, he basically is saying that God is all that he desires and that there isn't anything or anyone else that he wants or needs. And as much as I wish I could say that with complete sincerity, that would be a ridiculous statement for, for me to make most of the time, especially when you consider all that the world has to offer. You think about, you know, do I desire God? more than I desire the important relationships in my life, my wife, my kids, my family and friends? Do I desire him more than my job, my success, my possessions, my comforts, my freedoms? Do I desire him more than the things that I enjoy in life? You know, all the different forms of entertainment that we experience, hobbies and travel and art and music and culture and of course food. Uh, You know, think about all, all, all the wonderful things like that. And then all of the great you know, things we, we hope to accomplish, the goals and projects in life. And I remember becoming, a, as a new Christian, uh, it's kind of embarrassing to admit this, but I remember thinking, well, I, I, I'm glad that I'm a Christian now, and I, I'm, I'm glad that God's coming back, but I hope He takes His time a little bit, because I, I really, there's a lot I want to experience in life. And over the years, that's changed. Now I'm just like, come back today, if you would be perfect for me. But, but I remember feeling that way. There's some pretty good stuff out there for us to enjoy and experience, and yet Asaph is, is basically saying, God, you are all that I desire. Nothing compares to you. If I have you, I have everything. And if I lose you, I lose everything. Can you imagine making that statement? Well, when you come across things like this, it's easy to, to kind of brush it off and think, well, good for you, Asaph. You know, you must live in some kind of different realm than me, but I live in the real world. And, and, you know, I don't have this cushy life like you. You don't know, you don't know what it's like to live my life. Or you do this this thing where you just figure, oh, this is one of those rare anomalies, one of these super Christians that you run across every now and again. Um, But Asaph didn't start out with this perspective. In fact, the psalm starts out with a very different attitude and outlook than that. So look at verse 1. He says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. So you think, well, which is it, Asaph? Are you, you know, are you about to fall away from God or are you so devoted to him that you don't care about anything else? And so this morning, we're gonna to try to see, we're gonna go on this journey with Asaph to see how he got from point A to point B in hopes that maybe we can be there too. You see that that thing there he says at the beginning. It doesn't sound like a super Christian at all. Surely God is good, but that's how he starts the psalm out. That sounds like something I would say. You know, I can relate to that more than the, the way he ends. He's struggling to understand what God is doing in his life. He's having a crisis of faith. Have you ever been in that place where you know the facts, you know the truth of God's word, but you're having a hard time believing them? So you know God loves you. You know I know that's a truth, but you don't really believe it. You don't. You kind of wonder if maybe He'll change His mind at some point. He'll just wake up and go, "What was I thinking?" All right. You know that God provides for you. Provides for His kids but then you you worry if he'll really come through this time. You know God forgives, but you still feel guilty about what you do. You know God's promises, but, but your faith is pretty wobbly at times. And you know that God will do good to those who have become his children, but sometimes it just doesn't feel like he's keeping his end of the bargain. And this is where Asaph finds himself. And so he says, as for me, my feet had almost slipped. You know, losing your footing can be a very scary thing. Um, especially for the uncoordinated among us. Uh, I'm not a big fan of instability. I I try to make every effort I can to keep things between my feet and the ground. So I don't like wheels of any kind in there. Uh, I fall down a lot if that happens. You know, I want to be on solid surfaces at all times, safe, I like that. But this is even more important, spiritually speaking. We need to keep our feet on solid ground. And this is difficult when the world around us starts to get crazy. So we need to make sure that we're standing on the truth of God's word and specifically standing on Christ. You know, somebody should write a song about this. Maybe it could go something like this, you know, on Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. That'd be good, wouldn't it? Yeah. So what happens here is, is Asaph gets his eyes off of God, onto himself, onto his circumstances, and onto what's going on in the lives of people around him, and he begins to lose his footing. He starts to slide away from truth. And as a result, his perspective on things become clouded and skewed, and, and he, he starts to make some faulty conclusions, some really faulty conclusions, actually. And he, he begins these in verse 3. He says, "...for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked." For they have no pangs or pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there any knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. I mean, that's a pretty, pretty bleak perspective he sees here. He looks around at the people in the world who, who don't have a care or a thought about God, and he sees the way that they're living, and they seem happier. They seem more prosperous than him. And he envies them. They can live however they want without any consequences. He's witnessing successful wickedness, and it bugs him. <laughs> He's even jealous. You, you see that that hint of jealousy. Why are they able to leave this, this worry-free existence? And I'm over here struggling, and everything works out in their favor, and, and here I am, you know, just going through... You know, rough stuff and, and and that type of thing. They even look better than us. He points out that they're they're fat and sleek. Did you see that? Apparently that was a compliment. If I were to say if I were to say that to you this morning, you know, you're all looking very fat and sleek. You'd probably be offended and want to leave, but but this has to do with, with being healthy and, and strong. You know, we, we, we do this all the time in our in our airbrushed world that we live in. We um you know the, the filters that people use now on their pictures all the time. Sometimes you can't even they don't even look human anymore. You're like, I know that person, I don't recognize them. But we, we, we see all this the beautiful people on the pictures and on the magazine covers and, and none of it's real, but we believe it. You know, their lives appear to be perfect and trouble free, perfect marriages, perfect kids, perfect home, and, and, and it looks like storybook lives. They don't have bad days, they they don't seem to care about God and, and yet they're getting along just fine. And this can be extremely frustrating um, if you're a Christian who's trying to live a life of devotion to God, live according to his principles, and and then you see people who aren't doing that at all, but it looks like their lives are working out just fine. People who aren't following God seem to have a better life sometimes and, and it bugs us. We're not okay with that. That's not how it's supposed to be. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever, you know, you see you see them and you're just kind of filled with frustration and envy? Why do they have it so good? Why isn't my life easy like theirs? I deserve that, not them. I'm, 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 a, I'm a happy Christian. And I should, that's, a, that's kind of what it's like. The, the reason we're filled with envy when we look at these people is because we're not content with our own lives and our own circumstances and we feel as though God owes us more. So Asaph comes to the conclusion that these people are better off even though they're doing everything wrong. And this is a low point for him where he begins to question his own faith and his commitment to God. So in verse 13, he says something that's tragic. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Like there's there's no point in doing that is what he's saying. Why did I even bother with that? For all day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. He's having one of these throwing himself one of those pity parties we like to throw ourselves every once in a while, where he just frustrated. What's the point of living righteously? What do I gain? These people hate God and do whatever they want, and and they're better off than me. He wants answers, but he's not coming up with anything that makes sense, and he's about to give up. And and I I would just, you know, don't give up, Christian. (laughs) Don't give up. Times are going to get hard. You're going to get to that point where you start to question things. Don't give up. Hang in there. Because verse 17 exists. And this is a turning point here. He says, When I thought to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Now, of course, we think of the temple. That, that would have been there at this time. But but this, this more refers to coming into the presence of God. Just coming into his presence, being still before a mighty God and, and quieting yourself and being still before him. And also being around his people. That's part of the sanctuary of God too is being around other Christians. This caused everything to, to change. Everything started to come into focus now in a different way. And it corrected his faulty perception. He can now see that his whole his whole view of this was wrong. His his the way he was seeing the wicked and all this going on, it was all an illusion. It's kind of like you know, those, those sets you would see of western cities and it all looked real from the front, but then you walk to the side and it was just all propped up by a stick. That's what he's, that's what he's de- you know, seeing right now. It's all, this, it's all a facade. And I, look at how now he describes these same people he was just jealous of in verse 17. When I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. They're the ones that aren't on firm ground. They're they're the ones who are sliding. You make them fall into ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away by utter terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as fantasies. See, the reality of what he was taking place was much different than what he was choosing to believe. You don't want to trade places with them. You don't want their lives. They're, they're the ones that are on faulty, shaky ground. They're not people to be envied, they're people to be pitied and, and people to be grieved over and to pray for and to, you know, to, to hopefully see meet the Lord because one day they will wake up to an eternity, or a reality without God and they will be consumed with terror. That's what awaits them. It's sobering stuff to think about this. Every person who does not enter into a personal relationship with Jesus, this lifetime is as good as it gets. The moment this life ends, the reality of their choice to to ignore or reject Jesus is going to come crashing down on them, and it will last for eternity. For those of us who do enter, though, into a personal relationship with Jesus, this life is not as good as it gets. It gets so much better. Christ's heavenly kingdom will only and always be incredible forever. It won't grow old We'll never be bored there. I think we think that sometimes. I remember my kids, you know, when they were home too long and they started, I'm bored. We won't say that in heaven. It won't be that way. You know, get that idea of a cloud and a harp out of your mind. It's not, it's going to be so much better than everything we have here. Take all the best things we have, multiply it by, you know, a thousand and and it's going to be even better. We won't experience any of the things that ASAP was frustrated by. We will be fat and sleek for eternity. Right? <laughs> I don't know. Asaph now regrets his thinking and he repents before God for his, his wrong and bitter attitude. In verse 21, he says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Yeah, I, I, I so appreciate men like Asaph and like King David. Um, they were leaders in the church and they were open about what they were doing and what they were struggling with. Do you realize these are songs that, that the church would sing? Asaph wrote down this struggle he was having for the church to, to learn by. King David, at his greatest moral failing point ever in Psalm 51, wrote about it in a song so that we could sing it. You know, we don't do this enough. We don't, we're not honest with ourselves, with other people, with other Christians enough. It's okay for us to admit our far, faults. Well, wow. oof. <laughs> Strike that from the record? That was bad. <laughs> it's okay to admit when we're wrong. And even that, I suppose. <laughs> wow. Told you I was a little off on my... Uh... Yeah. You see a raw honesty here with Asaph, and, and, and I love that he was willing to confess it, not only before God, but also before the, God's people. He paints a picture for us in verse 23, even though he'd been complaining and questioning and doubting God, he, he understands what God is like. And I love this. He almost paints a picture of a loving father who, who just has a great understanding for his, for his, his, his son or, or daughter. Um, God is like that. He's so patient with us. Even when we're, we're raging and, and, you know, going on about how terrible life is and everything, he just kind of holds our hand and waits patiently for us and, and, and waits till we're done with our little tantrum, you know, and then just kind of pats us on the head. And so he says in verse 23, nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. You see, you're teaching me through this Lord. And afterward, you will receive me into glory. not that crazy? As messed up as I am, as, as, a, as rotten as I am as a kid, God will receive me into his glory at some point. He remains faithful. You know, we can act like a, you know, complete buffoon before God, questioning Him, fought, failing in our faith, blowing our testimony. You know, no doubt Asaph was saying this in front of other people, and they were hearing it. You know, why don't I wash my hands in vain? This Christian life isn't, you know. And, and yet, God remains faithful, and He understands. And this is all because of Jesus. You know, this is why, this is why God puts up with us. If you ever wonder, like, is he ever going to reach that point where he decides, no, he won't. Because, because when he sees us, he sees the righteousness of his son. He sees us clothed in Christ. And that's why he won't give up, no matter what you do, is because Jesus traded places with us. And that's a beautiful thing. This is what the gospel is. This is why, you know, we, coming into the sanctuary, when I think about what that means, it really just means reminding ourselves of the gospel, reminding ourselves of who Jesus is, what he's done for us, and what our true identity and standing is before God now. When we do that, everything changes about our perspective. That's why we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day, not for salvation, but just to remind ourselves of who we are in God's sight. We are holy before him. We are blameless before him. We are perfect before him because Jesus' righteousness rests upon us. You know, Asaph thought he was missing out on something, and now he, he comes to a very different conclusion. He concludes that, that God is enough, and that only God can satisfy and bring him true happiness. So now we're back to verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. All this other stuff doesn't matter. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion Forever. Do you know this might sound weird? Do you know that God's design for you and for me is to be happy? <laughs> Sounds weird, right? What do you mean? I'm a Christian. What do you mean he wants me to be happy? That doesn't sound right. You know, when God made Adam and Eve, he didn't create them to be depressed and dour and, you know, walking around like, you know, probably going to see God in the garden again today. I mean, it wasn't that wasn't what it was like. They were made to be happy and full of life and joy. And this is wired into us by God. Right? We long to find a way to be happy. Right now, people everywhere are doing their best to find this happiness. The problem, of course, is is where they're looking for it. Adam and Eve had everything that they needed to be happy in the garden. They had God. And what did they do? They looked elsewhere and everything went wrong because of it. Instead of looking to God as the source of their happiness, they thought, wait a second, let's look elsewhere. They believed the lie that they would find more life in the forbidden fruit than they had in God. And and we all paid for their mistake, but we continue to make the same mistake, don't we? We bought into the lie that, that happiness comes through having the right relationship or having the right stuff. So if I find my soulmate, I'll finally be complete. I can't tell you how many times I hear this line of thinking. And then you think you found them and well, that wasn't it. So, ah, but they're still out there somewhere. Only if I, you know, this is what we do. Or if I get enough money, or enough success, or enough possessions, or whatever it is, then I'll finally be happy. We believe that. But God has made us in such a way that we'll never find lasting happiness in anything other than him. Right? Anything else would be idolatry, wouldn't it? If we could find happiness in something other than him, he would have set up you know, us to be you know, idolaters, which is sinful. And idolatry is just simply putting something else where And the position that God belongs. I I think sometimes we, when we think about idolatry, we think about a golden calf and I have no interest in a golden calf. I like, you could build a golden calf right now and I would not bow down and worship it. But boy, there's all kinds of other things that I'm interested in that I don't recognize as idolatry that that would fit that same thing. You know, it's funny. we've, We've all experienced the disappointment that comes from realizing the truth that, that we can't find happiness apart from God, whether it's a person or a possession or, or even a position. Um, Think about all the things in life that you thought you couldn't live without. You know, you just had to have it. And then what happened when you finally got it? Yeah, it was all right for a while, but it, it, didn't, it didn't do that. Remember as kids, we did this. At Christmas time would come. It's like, I have to have this thing. I can't wait. It's going to change everything when I get this. And then we'd get it. And then a few weeks later, you didn't even know where it was anymore because it didn't do it. But you know what? The next thing that'll be the one that does it. And when I finally get that, then, and we go through this cycle of repeating it. Have you ever watched a dog chase its tail? You you know, you you think, this poor, dumb animal. They don't don't realize they're never going to get it, no matter how much they try and how much they exert themselves. They're just, but I, I don't mean to be mean, but that's what you look like trying to find happiness apart from God. We're chasing our tails. That's what we're doing. So here, here's a, a test for you. I want you to think about something. Try to imagine whether it's person, possession, position, whatever it is. Think about something you just, you have to have. You want it so much. Once you get it, you think it'll be something. Think, think about that thing and just kind of hold it up. And, and then on the other hand, I want you to imagine Jesus. Would you trade? No. Would you trade? Would you think? Does it even compare? It shouldn't. If it does, you, you don't understand Jesus properly, I would say. I mean, it's, we need to throw that thing down, run to Jesus and cling to him. He is everything. He's our greatest treasure. And the sooner we figure that out, the sooner we get from point A to point B in this journey that Asaph was going on. You know, Paul figured this out in Philippians 3.8. He said, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for the sake of him, I have suffered the loss of everything else, all things. And I count them as the King James uses the word dung. And I'm going to use it here because we, are, I think our, our, our say rubbish, but he's saying, I, I consider everything else like dung compared to this. He, he, he has Christ, nothing else matters. He got to this place where Jesus was enough and it changed it all. You know, Tim Keller just passed away this week and he said, was a gift to the church, in my opinion, and I've learned a lot from him. I'm just exhausted from my trip, I think, but you know me, I I cry anyway. He said this, and I think it's so good. You don't realize Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And and most of us haven't really got there. Some of us have. Sometimes we go through periods like that. but, But this is a truth that we need to understand. If everything else was stripped away, if we have Jesus, is that enough? And I would say, yes, it is. You know, when you get to that point and you realize that, it changes everything. Because if your happiness is attached to any of these other things, it can be taken away from you in an instant. But it's if attached to Jesus, it's like a shelf nobody can reach. No matter what happens, that cannot be taken away from you. You can't lose that. It's safe. Nothing can separate you from Jesus. You can't lose him. You might lose your health, your job, your money, your status, your looks, right? Your hair. It's happening. All those things is going to happen. You might lose a relationship, somebody that's close to you. You might lose out on a dream that you have, whatever it is. But you can't lose Jesus. So, so, so that's what we need to cling to. And this is why, just a kind of a side note. This is why what we win people with is so important when it comes to. It matters when we uh, we often try to make Christianity look attractive to people that we're trying to to bring in. By talking about the benefits, right? And not talking about Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is the prize, He's the main event. But we talk about the benefits. And this is where the prosperity gospel comes in and, and angers me so much because they, they start to say, well, you know what? If you, if you become a Christian, you'll have good health and you'll have money and you won't have any problems in your life. And we're setting people up for disillusionment when we do that. And it's tragic. You know, some of you here today have gone through very difficult things, stuff I can't even imagine. You, you've had losses, you've had health problems, you've, you've had financial difficulties and, and things that I can't imagine. And you've gotten through them. But, it, but if, you were, if you were to believe the prosperity gospel, you should never have to go through any of those things. If you bought into the lie that the life of a Christian is this kind of zippity-doo-dah, you know, whatever existence that's free from difficulties, you're probably wondering what in the world is going on. You're probably going through what Asaph went through. Why is all this happening? It doesn't make sense. I thought I was supposed to be enjoying my best life now. The prosperity gospel is a lie. It's not taught in the Bible. It's all about man's glory, not about God's glory. And and it puts us on a quest to find happiness in what's been created and not in the creator. And and it's not going to work. God never promised us earthly riches or a life of ease. He did promise to bless us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, not with every earthly blessing in the earthly places, but I think we think that. He didn't promise us abundant life, or I'm sorry, He, he did promise us abundant life, not a life of abundance. We get those two things confused. He did promise to conform us into the image of His Son. And, and that's gonna involve some pain and some suffering. And some of us have experienced that. Some of us are going to require more chiseling and more hammering than others, right? You know who you are. I don't have to. <laughs> but in the end, what God is doing, the project he's, 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 he's working on will be glorious. And God did promise that he'd never give up on us. He'll never leave us or forsake us. He's promised an amazing future with him. So where are your feet this morning? Are they securely centered on the rock that is Christ? Or are they on a slippery slope? Asaph needed a radical change in perspective to get from point A to point B to get his feet back on solid ground. And so just a couple of quick things to, to kind of finish with. The next time you start to have kind of an Asaph moment in your life, remember to do the following. The first one is to look up. Okay? Look up. Spend less time looking this way and more time looking this way. Because we're really good at looking at, you know, the, the horizontal. Don't be like Peter walking on the water, right? We start to look at the wind and the waves, and, and you know you're going down if you do that. But if you fix your gaze on Jesus, th- that's, that's where we need to look. So there, th- another good song could come out of this. Uh, turn your eyes <laughs> turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face, and the things of Earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory. And grace. It's beautiful. Number two, have an eternal perspective. You know, we're living in a fallen and sinful world that we're just passing through on our way to our eternal dwelling place. So don't make yourself at home here. That's a mistake that I see too many Christians making. They're putting roots down here. And again, you're setting yourself up for disappointment. When Jesus left here, he said he was going to prepare a place for us that where he is, we may be also. And that's what we're looking forward to. So when you start to get overwhelmed with your present circumstances, think about what you would tell, you know, I think about what you tell like a high school student sometimes. It's like, you know what? It's going to get better. Hang in there. It's going to get better. And it does. We need to hear the same thing. I can't tell you how many times I've had something happen in my life to where I thought, I'm never getting over this. This is, this is devastating. I don't know how I'm going to get through this. And a week or two weeks later, it's solved. It's sorted, as they say in the UK. We heard that a lot. It's sorted. Paul said it this way in Romans 8:18. 8, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So there's hope that lies ahead. Have an eternal perspective. perspective. Try to look over the top of this stuff when, when we get overwhelmed to what's coming, right? Keep your eyes on the prize, so to speak. Number three is don't get caught up in what you think you deserve or what is fair. <laughs> This is so hard for us for some reason, but the idea that I deserve better or that's not fair is very dangerous for a Christian. Do you think any of us will utter those kinds of phrases when we stand in the throne room of God? No. Then why do we do it now? Right. In one sense, it's true. If you're a Christian, you have not gotten what's fair. You have not gotten what you deserve. God hasn't treated you fairly at all. Right? He loves you even though he has every reason not to. He pursued a relationship with you when you were running in the opposite direction. He sent his son to suffer and die on your behalf. That's not fair, right? He cleansed you, he forgave you, he gave you a new heart, he gave you a spirit, he blesses you, he protects you, he provides for you, and we could go on and on and on. God took what you deserved and put it on his son, which is the greatest injustice that will ever occur. That's not fair, and we're the recipients of that. Praise God. So if you get to a place where you begin to feel sorry for self and think about you know things that aren't fair start to consider what God has done for you and where you would be if he hadn't. Yeah. The fourth one is this just get into the sanctuary. Uh, you know those old stories where you were you were running away from somebody that was chasing you and the, and the only hope you could do is to you know you could you could find sanctuary by running into a church. That hasn't changed (laughs) you know just get into the sanctuary run into god's presence proverbs 18 10 says the name of the lord is a strong tower the righteous run to it and are safe so make the lord your refuge And and we do that by keeping our life centered in him in his word in prayer in fellowship with other believers i can't tell you how important this is when we start to look at the stuff going on in the world and and that's what we're tuning into it gets bleak fast. When you get around truth tellers, other people who believe the promises of God, it changes everything. I love that about the, the relationship I have with the other pastors. They do this for me probably more often than I do it for them, but they remind me of truth when I need to hear it. I start to spin out of control and get, you know, get into Brent mode is probably what they call it behind my back. And they I don't know. And they stop and, and remind me of truth. And we need that with each other. It corrects your perspective. And the last one is this, and this is the hardest one for me, is just learn contentment. You know, Uh, Jeremiah Burroughs wrote a book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment because it is. It's something we don't come across very easily. You know, it's so easy to look at what everyone else has and be discontent like Asaph did. But once he saw what God had given him, Everything changed. I, I love the way he phrases it. Do you remember when you were a kid and you had to divide something up with the other siblings or like friends or something like that? You, you, you took this seriously because you wanted to make sure you got your portion. So you get a ruler out and you'd make sure we had to do the same with our kids. Like if they split a piece of gum in half, whoever split it, the other person got to choose the half because you know, you'd always split it for, you know, in your favor. <laughs> Once Asaph saw that God was his portion, the part that he gets, it changed everything. Right? God is my portion. I don't care what all these other people have out there and what they're going through. I get God. That's amazing. Enough. God is enough. You know, when you hear that word, is that true? Is God enough? It ought to be. That implies satisfaction, fulfillment, completeness, contentment. So consider the Apostle Paul. Think about his life and everything he went through. I can't imagine, you know, going through what Paul went through. It's crazy to think about but this is what he said. He said, I've learned to be content in all circumstances. And I know what it's like to be rich. I know what it's like to be poor. I know what it's like to be hungry. I know what it's like to be, I mean, he went through it all. A- and this is when he said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We tend to take that out of context and use it to, win, you know, to, to bungee jump or something like that. No, he's saying, I know how to lay on a jail cell floor in the cold and wet. If I have Christ, I can do that. I can go through anything as long as I have Christ. Take Christ away, I can't do. I can't go through any of this. With Christ, I can do anything. That's the point. Doesn't that sound like an amazing way to exist? If you're a Christian, you have Christ. God is your portion. And that should change everything. I love how Asaph sums up his journey in verses 27 and 28. He says, For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of your works. And this is what he's doing in the psalm. He's, he's taking us on this journey so that he can tell people about God's works and remind them of his faithfulness. And this is what we get to do as well. So if you've been recipients of grace and you understand what it's like to have God as your portion, now we get to go take that out to the people that don't understand that yet and let them know there is hope. There's a God who loves them and who has done everything necessary to have a relationship with him through his son. What a privilege we have to be able to do that. Amen. All right. Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for providing all that we need um, through your son. Lord, it's amazing to think about uh, the fact that we get you. Uh, it just should blow our minds every day. That should never get old. You have, you have made a way for us to be adopted into your family as sons and daughters, to be seated at your table for eternity. Thank you, Lord. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.